hakika wema nazo fadhili hakika wema nazo Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week, I get to sit down with a living composer and talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. Join me and take a peek inside the mind of a composer. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Rina Esmail. Rina is an Indian-American composer who works between the worlds of Indian and Western classical music. She holds degrees in music composition from Juilliard and Yale School of Music. She received a Fulbright Nehru grant to study Hindustani music in India. Rina's works have been commissioned by ensembles including the Los Angeles Master Chorale, Kronos Quartet, Richmond Symphony, San Francisco Girls Chorus, Albany Symphony, and many more. She was the Seattle Symphony's composer-in-residence for 2020 to 2021 and is the Los Angeles Master Chorale Swan Family Artist-in-Residence. Rina Esmail, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. So, Rina, I know you live in Los Angeles now. Did you grow up in that area? I actually did. I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, I lived here until I was 18, and then I moved back. Um, I was away for 13 years and then moved back home, so I'm, I'm living in my hometown. <laughs> oh, very nice. Uh, so did you grow up in a, a musical family? Were your parents encouraging music? You know, it's it's funny, not at all. There's no one in my family who is a professional musician. We have a, a dancer just in, in my um, uh-huh. extended family. But otherwise, I think people were really musical, you know. But certainly, um, my, my mom grew up in Kenya. My dad grew up in Pakistan. And those were not places where you made a career as a musician. So right. it would have been hard to know whether there were generations of my family who maybe could have. And I think maybe um, the grandfather on my mom's side definitely definitely could have made a career in music if, if circumstances had been different. But uh, yeah, yeah, was he a singer or what was he doing? It was interesting. He, he loved Western classical music. So my mom comes from a a part of India that was colonized by Portugal. It's Goa. And um, so she was raised on Western classical music. And uh, my grandfather would play these records of Beethoven symphonies for her. You know, when she lived in New Zealand for her own school, she heard Arthur Rubinstein play live. And, you know, it's just, it's really incredible because she had a love for classical music because of her father um, for a really long uh-huh. time. So what about you? Where did you start? Were you doing piano lessons or or choir or band or what were you doing? Yeah. So when I started in music and I think, you know, if you look back at my trajectory, it was very clear that I was a musical kid and my mom would see that I would, uh, you know, ask her to repeat nursery rhymes until I, I had memorized them. And then I would sing the same tune and change the words and then sing the words and change the tune. All these things that are obvious composer traits. But of course, my parents just thought, oh, that's every kid just does that. That's that's fine. Um, but I started um, in guitar lessons and I loved okay. playing the guitar. I thought that was was really cool. I started when I was eight. And then from there, I played a little bit of violin and really then got serious about piano when I was 11. And got pretty serious right away and and mm-hmm. just practiced for many hours and really had the idea that I wanted to become a pianist. Um, obviously, I'm not a pianist now, but <laughs> but that the piano is still the instrument that I uh, that is my primary instrument. Gotcha. So I know you went to a performing arts high school. 
So did you know at that point already that you wanted to make a, a career path in music? Or, or what was your trajectory? What did you want to become? So it was interesting because I was going to um, an all-girls prep school called Marlboro um, in in uh, Los Angeles. And it was a really awesome school. I, I was there with all my friends. And I remember just having heard the word Juilliard in my mind. And like a kid with stars in my eyes, I'm like, that seems like an important place. I want to go there. So <laughs> my parents took me to Juilliard to see what it was all about and to get a tour. And when I looked at the audition requirements, I said, oh my God, if I want to get into this school, I have to change my life. Like there are people who are way ahead of where I am. And so I left the private school that I was at and chose to go to an arts high school from 10th grade to 12th grade to actually begin that journey of having the time I needed to practice to get good enough at piano. But then it was really funny because the minute I landed up at this arts high school, my theory teachers immediately saw the composer traits in me and said, mm. you know what, we think you should take this class in, in composition. You might be this might be the right fit for you. And it just moved very, very quickly from there. Very interesting. So you you were starting composing even in the in the high school that where you were were you composing for the ensembles there or what were you um, doing so the 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 comp studio would bring in uh different people and they were professionals around la that's one of the great things about growing up in la there's always amazing musicians who are just around <laughs> who do all kinds of things and so we'd have ensembles come in and they would read our pieces and it was really only probably the last year my senior year of high school that i was really serious about the idea of composing and even then you know when i was in college or when I was applying to college, I um, I basically wanted to apply as a pianist. And the, the teachers were like, hey, you're already applying for piano. Why don't you also apply for composition? I had written two pieces. I sent them off. And I mean, it was amazing because I was getting calls for composition way before I was getting calls for piano. And that, mm. you know, you see, especially as a high schooler auditioning for schools, you're kind of trying to see where you meet the world. And I was realizing that the world was meeting me more in a place for composition than it was for piano. And so in a way, I just followed that resonance. Uh-huh. So when you were growing up, were you listening to Hindustani music as well as, as Western music? Was that part of your upbringing as well? So no. It, what's really interesting is that, you know, as I mentioned, my, my mom was kind of a uh, listening to Western classical music. And then yeah. my dad didn't have that much music in his family. And so I really only grew up knowing that Western music was the kind of music that that was really what I knew about classical yeah. music. And outside of that, I definitely listened to a lot of kind of singer songwriters. I, you know, my, my friend's parents were into Joni Mitchell and stuff and Barbara Streisand. And those were the kinds of things that I listened to that were outside of Western classical music. And I think I was aware that India had a musical tradition, but because no one in my family knew much about it, and I was certainly one of very few South Asian kids who was going to the schools that I was going to, I had no one to introduce me to those things until much later in my life. Mm -hmm. So I know you, you studied it uh, quite intensely, and it sort of culminated with your doctoral thesis, uh, which I want to go to. So Finding Common Ground, Uniting Practices in Hindustani and Western Art Musicians. So it explores the methods and challenges of the collaboration between Hindustani musicians and Western composers. So give me your elevator speech about this topic. What's the, what's the biggest challenge that these two groups face, and what sort of solutions do you have? 
basically, I would say that if you go back historically, when Western classical music started being notated, that's when it separated from a lot of other musical traditions. And so um, Hindustani music has stayed primarily an oral art form. So you learn it by, um, by rote, you learn by repeating things back to your teacher. And um, Hindustani musicians are essentially improvisers. And I like to say that Sometimes with Western classical music, let's say like 95% of it is written and that last 5%, you know, after the notes and rhythms and uh, the score, everything that's in the score is interpreted, then you can kind of put your own spin on it. In Hindustani music, it's maybe only, you know, 2 to 5% that's the same. And then you're building things from, from those very uh, wide scaffoldings. And so how do you bring together musicians that have... A, never improvise, and B, only improvise. Right. And so you can imagine all the things that happen there. And, you know, just obviously, like, in a rehearsal, when someone is not able to, when, when someone stops, and then they're like, okay, we're going to take this from measure 35. What does that mean if you don't have a sense of things, you know? And yeah. even things like, I mean, the, the difference between uh, Hindustani musicians sitting on the floor, Western musicians uh, sitting in chairs, the sight lines, the communication where a Western musician is looking at a stand and a Hindustani musician is looking at the Western musician trying to figure out why they're not looking back at the same <laughs> rate. And so all these things are just, you know, almost human challenges. And I love that fact. I love that there's just these challenges of basic communication but once those challenges are surmounted and once people find a way to communicate with one another and it really is individual to individual um, they're able to build a relationship that's really unique and not uh, prescribed as it is in Western music okay I'm a violist I know this is my job in this orchestra this is what I do they get to take a step outside of that and be like who am I when I'm communicating with someone across cultures it brings out something different in me so perhaps you'll talk about this later when we get to your pieces, but when you're writing for these two groups simultaneously, how do you approach that? I mean, you've, you've got this very sort of notated Western notation that we are so used to, and yet you have the improvisers along with it. How do you deal with that? That's been the last decade of my life, honestly, <laughs> is figuring out how that works. Um, because what has to happen is that each group has to see something that they recognize in the other group. But it's almost like they don't necessarily know that what the markers are of each other's tradition. But I have to know what the markers are of both traditions. So, for right. example, there's this rhythmic device called the Tihai, where something is repeated three times in Hindustani music. And it's, re it's done in this, this phrase is repeated in a very specific way where a Hindustani mu musician can immediately hear, okay, this is where something is going to align. I know where it's going to be. I know when it's coming. I know to look for it. So if I write that out for a Western musician, a Hindustani musician immediately will hear it. And then on the other hand, um, sometimes I know a Hindustani musician is going to have basically a certain trajectory or work within a certain uh, set of pitches, and I'll write the Western musician's parts so that I know basically whatever the Hindustani musician improvises will go along with what I need. And so then it's a matter of kind of dialing up and dialing back, because I can say to the Western musicians, hey, I want you to try this phrase and put this ornamentation on it that you wouldn't normally do, and I want you to listen to what the Hindustani musician is doing, and then kind of take your interpretation from that. And then on the other hand, sometimes I put something in the Western musician part and I'll say to the Hindustani musician, okay, I want you to just listen to what, what the Western musician is doing and then improvise off of that. So it's almost like, you know, the cultures are 
there's always kind of a space between these two musical cultures and I occupy that space and I make it smaller and smaller and smaller until I can kind of grab their hands and just connect them to one another um, and then let them go and let them fly. Oh, that's really cool. So I'm, I'm curious, do you have a, do you have a favorite time period of Western art music? Are you like a, an early music buff or an atonal aficionado? I mean, what, what, what floats your boat in Western music? Well, it's interesting because I think both sides of the the common practice era are really interesting to me. Like kind of the the Baroque side and specifically, I mean, who doesn't love Bach? But I also feel like Scarlatti is someone that just makes me so happy because I feel like there's such color and there's such um, use of so many different musical influences in his work. And I think that's really inspiring to me. Um, and then on the other hand, things like um, Impressionism, uh, the, the kind of textures and colors that are used there are also really inspiring to me. So it's kind of on either side. And I love the stuff in the middle. I love the romantic stuff. I love the classic stuff but what are the things that really kind of spark me are those two sides yeah that's cool so sort of going along that thread do you have i'm i'm uninitiated in hindustani music i've tried to do some research preparing for this but do you have a favorite stylistic feature of hindustani music that you love to use uh I, you know, I, I know about ragas and talas, but I, I don't even know enough about them to really speak <laughs> about them. Well, but I, I love that you're you're engaging it even when you're not sure about things because that's what I love is I, I love that people will meet me wherever they are. And like someone doesn't have to be an expert in Hindustani music to meet me. That's, that's why I'm here, right? To be on both sides. Like the, yeah. the Hindustani musicians will ask me the same things about Western music and it's equally fun to answer those questions. Um, in, in my case, so there are specific ragas, you know, in, in Western music, we have major and minor scales and then right. we have modes. Um, but in Hindustani music, there are so many different rags that you can learn from. And each one has a very specific way of navigating it, specific phrases that kind of work or don't work. And I would um, liken that to the way that we see the minor scale, where we all know, okay, sometimes a seven is sharp, sometimes it's flat, sometimes we go up a certain way. And we know what feels right and wrong, and we kind of, it escapes theory a little bit. That's how most rag is. It has that kind uh -huh. of feel about it. And so you just learn by exactly example. And so I certainly have rugs. I've found that over the years, there are certain rugs that I'll gravitate to for a year at a time. Um, and so I've just been getting out of this phase of this amazing drag called Charukeshi, which is, um, it goes from one to five is major, and then from five up to one is a uh, natural minor. So it has these two sides to it. When you're on uh, the lower side of one, if you're on the one, seven, six, five side, it sounds minor. Then when you're on the one, two, three, four, five side, it sounds major. And so to our Western ears, you can just mess with these things and mess with expectation in such an unusual way, but in such an organic way too, because um, uh, these rags have been uh, cultivated over years and years. And so you're, you're not uh, just inventing a system that you invented. You're working with something that's already so rich and already has so many possibilities and just picking out of it the things that feel maybe like they would be resonant to different ears. Hmm. So when you went to India to study this, were you... Uh, I mean, was it taught to you in an oral tradition as well? Or was, are these written down? Or how, how did you go about learning them? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really fascinating because a lot of my first exposure to Indian classical music was through other Indian singers and specifically Indian women. And what drew me to the art 
was that, like I said, I wasn't seeing very many people who were South Asians in Western classical music. And so I was thinking to myself, okay, I know there are other South Asian women who share my culture who uh, maybe are musicians. And I thought, okay, well, they just do a different kind of music. So I'm going to try to find that. And I think everything finally culminated um, when I went to Yale. And what was really interesting is they had a professor who was like, a Western musician, but who taught Indian classical theory, who typically taught that class. And he wasn't available that semester. So they hired someone from India who knew nothing about Western music to teach oh, the wow. class. And something about that where I was like, oh, I don't have to use my Western music mind. I'm just one Indian woman learning from another Indian woman this art form. And it suddenly felt like I had this direct plumb line to my own culture in a way that I had never experienced before. And so that was a feeling that I was chasing, this feeling where even when I went to India, people were just kind of, the attitude was, you know, they would look at me and they'd be like, look, we don't know what music you were doing before, but you know, it's great that you found your own cultural music. Come right in, you know, like <laughs> let's, let's learn this together. And because they believed that I would get it, I think I learned it faster because there was no sense that someone who had my DNA wouldn't be able to learn it. And of course, you know, you can say that that's definitely stereotyping in a, in a weird way, but it certainly worked for me because I felt so accepted and so, so uh, challenged in a way that people thought that I was able to handle it. Sure. Well, you know, you've had over the years now, you've had commissions from some pretty amazing ensembles. So thinking back, can you remember a premiere or a performance of one of your pieces that is particularly memorable to you? Wow. Well, I know we'll, we'll talk about this a little later, but definitely the, the, premiere tour of This Love Between Us, my oratorio, mm -hmm. was really a life-changing experience for me. Um, because there was there were all these points in my life where I decided not to play it safe. And I decided I'm going to do something that it just, I don't know how this is going to land. I don't know how this is going to go over. I feel a little bit out of my depth. And I'm asking musicians who I don't yet know to meet me and to trust me in this new experience. And what was amazing about the This Love Between Us tour is that it was the combination of all my musical education. So it was, I did my undergrad at Juilliard and it was the Juilliard uh, historical performance uh, program that played the, the, in the orchestra. And then I did all my graduate studies at Yale and it was their um, choir, Scola Cantorum, that, that was the choir. And then um, these the sitar and tabla player from India where I did my Fulbright. And so I thought, wow, th there are these three groups of people that I can bring together and I have the unique understanding of how each of their systems work. And just having that moment on stage, uh, it premiered at Alice Tully Hall um, in Lincoln Center in New York. And I remember just being on stage at that moment thinking like, all these different threads of my life are finally finding their way together. And as a child growing up, you know, I never thought that I would be able to experience that. And it was this moment of synthesis for me, for sure. That's awesome. So I've got two more questions for you before we take a break. And these are non-music related, so we can get to know you a little bit more. Um, what is one of your favorite books to read? Oh, that's a really good question so many great books. Um, well, I will say that right now, I have to uh, actually go through and read this again because it's such an amazing novel, but <laughs> The Overstory, which is a book about, uh, you know, trees and the connection between uh, uh, 
nature and humans and, and the connections mm. between us. Um, that book is just a, a, an incredible uh, piece of craft and uh, something that kind of gets in your soul really deeply. And as a composer, I will say, understanding how that material came about just purely through my compositional mind, I mean, it is a work of complete genius. The Overstory? The Overstory by Richard Powers, I think. I'll have to look that up. All right, last question. When you're not composing or you need a break, <laughs> what sort of things do you like to do for fun? Yeah, I'm trying to understand that myself. I'm kind of a, a workaholic. Um, but we just moved to this uh, lovely neighborhood in Los Angeles called Altadena, which is up in the mountains. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's amazing because if you just walk behind our house, you can see these incredible, beautiful mountains. So um, we love taking our dog for walks up there and just kind of letting the world go and being surrounded by nature is, is really incredible. And then I also think I'm I'm really inspired just by people. I mean, there are so many great people who I have in my life, either in person or, you know, across the country and world. And that's the amazing thing about being a musician is you are just in these different communities and you get to have this this large group of people who each bring out something different in you. So um, whenever I can, I always like catching up with friends, too. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad to be one of the people in your life. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to listen to some of Rena's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Rena Ismail. The first song that we're going to talk about today is The Tipping Point for SATB and Tabla, which, for those that don't know, are a set of hand drums that are essential for Hindustani rhythmic practice. So, first of all, The Tipping Point of what? Yeah, so The Tipping Point is a title that was taken from this text by Amy Fogerson. And it's the tipping point of many things. Essentially, is the tipping point between darkness and light. And that works in a variety of ways. One is this idea of daybreak, that it's it's that, that beginning of the day between darkness and light. Um, the other is this idea of the solstice, um, which is the tipping point in the year when it kind of tips back towards mm-hmm. light. And the third was just um, a function of me writing the piece during a very dark point in the pandemic and thinking mm-hmm. that by the time the piece was premiered, maybe things would be better and the light would have returned, which indeed it did. It was it was better by the time the piece was premiered. <laughs> That's great. So how would you describe the relationship between the tabla player and the choir in this piece? Yeah, so I think um, it was really interesting about this piece because it was the first time that I had really studied tabla myself. So my mm-hmm. my Hindustani training is as a, a vocalist. And so I definitely sing Hindustani music. So I'm very familiar with how that, that works in the voice. But I've not studied any percussion, not Western percussion and not Hindustani percussion. And I finally said to myself, okay, if I'm going to be writing for tabla, I really need to, to study it. So while I was writing The Tipping Point, I joined this tabla intensive that was happening with this wonderful tabla player, Sean Modovetsky in Mon- Montreal. And I learned to actually really play tabla. And what was amazing is that I realized that sometimes I have to control the parameters of um, voice so tightly because, you know, if you do a different note at a different time, harmonies can change and implications can change. But there's so much more improvisation that, that can take place and can be left up to the drummer in tabla playing that doesn't... Um, uh, it doesn't uh, set off the balance of the piece at all. So mm-hmm. I think in this case, the tabla player is someone who can really be pretty much Hindustani trained. And once the tabla player gets going and gets in a groove, they're left to their own devices to kind of respond in real time to the choir. 
Fantastic. Well, we're going to listen now to The Tipping Point, here performed by the Santa Fe Desert Chorale with Joshua Haberman, conductor.
All right, our next piece today is Tutarana for SATB Acapella Choir. So this fast-paced piece uses rhythmic syllables combining the Hindustani musical form of tarana with the Western idea of tuti, choral singing. So can you elaborate more about writing this piece? Yeah, so I wrote, this is one of my first piece that used these these syllables. And I think a tarana is this solo art form where it's it's almost like a scat in jazz where someone is kind of showing you their virtuosity by doing these syllables really quickly. And it, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's just incredible to, to watch people do that. And I always say, you know, when people are singing this piece, especially when young people are singing this piece, just look up like hashtag tarana on Instagram and see what comes up because you'll be just uh, uh, bowled over by how amazing taranas actually are. So in this case, I wanted many people to get this idea of what it feels like to sing a tarana because um, that feeling on the tip of your tongue when you're able to articulate these things really fast, it feels pretty amazing. And I know when we, we first had the performance of it, it looks terrifying on the page. I mean, in all honesty, most of my music looks really terrifying on the page because I'm trying to notate a tradition that was never traditionally notated. So right. of course, it's going to look weird. But, um, but once you kind of get past that, you can kind of see that it's this thing where the faster you do it, the, the more excited you feel. So the choir started by going under tempo. And then by the time we were ready to record it, it was so far above tempo because people were so excited about it. So it's, it's really, like, I love it people back, seeing bring it. Back. Yeah, like, no, no, go wild. I mean, if you can do it, by all means, <laughs> whatever floats your boat. So you do mention on your website uh, how you thought differently about this piece during the Me Too movement. What, what was this change? It was interesting because um, it, the the um, elision of the words tuti and tarana are obviously you know what you describe, but then I also realized that if you were to translate it differently, it translates to we are tarana, like we are all tarana, right? And tarana being tarana Burke. I mean, if you pronounce it in a Western way, tarana Burke, who was the the founder of the Me Too movement. And I remember going for my um, my doctoral recital uh, where they were going to perform to tarana um, and being on the train on the way up to New Haven and just thinking, wow, that's a really different translation of that. And I mean, you know, I don't know uh, what implication it has today or, or, or what that, that means, but I think th- there's something that's very empowering about the piece, whether it's just being able to to do that and execute it or about just the joy that it's supposed to bring to people and um yeah and and, and actually initially the piece was written for a woman's chorus since then it's been um there's a brass quintet arrangement there's an SATB <laughs> arrangement i mean Iowa state 600 kids are singing it for all state it, it's super super uh-huh. cool but um it, initially it was meant for women cool well here we go we're going to listen to tutarana here performed by the University of North Texas University Singers with Lindsay Polk, conductor.
All right, we're going to turn next to Win the Violin for SATB and Cello. So you talk about this piece as a companion to Victoria's uh, Ovos Omnes. How do these two pieces pair together? You know, it was interesting because I was actually asked to pair the two pieces uh, for the purpose of the commission. But the further that I get from it, the less I actually remember what the pairing was. <laughs> and the more I kind of think about just the the feeling of intimacy of Ovos Omnes. And uh-huh. that that was something that I kind of built this piece out of. And this idea that, you know, sometimes we feel like we need to be so strong and we need to be so infallible and we need to just, you know, enter the world with the spirit of like wanting to fight. And there are also these moments where we need to be a little bit softer and we need to kind of let ourselves crack open and feel that vulnerability. And so in a way, um, Ovos Omnes made me feel that and I wanted to convey that through When the Violin. So it's called When the Violin. But originally scored for cello, as we're going to hear. So why cello and not violin? That's a great question. And my husband, who is a violinist, is very angry about this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So it was actually a stipulation of the commission. And this is so funny because, you know, when you look historically, you're like, well, why did Bach write this thing for this random combination of wins? And it's like, oh, it was just who was there at the time, you know, and you're creative with whatever you're given. So in this case, it was like, well, a cellist is going to be here. And um, I was like, great, that sounds good so but I, I get asked that question a lot because there is now a version for violin and then there's another that, version yeah. for unaccompanied violin and so people are like where's the origin point of this you know <laughs> yeah all right well we are going to listen to this performance by the los angeles master chorale uh jenny wong conductor and cecilia tsan on cello Thank you. 
And our last piece today is This Love Between Us for SATB Choir, Baroque Orchestra, Sitar, and Tabla. The seven movements of this piece are linked to the seven major religion traditions of India and how each approaches the idea of unity. So first of all, what are the seven major religions that you represent? And secondly, how did you approach each one differently musically? Yeah, so the in, in order of the piece, I don't know if I can do them in order of how big they are. I know Hinduism <laughs> is number one, but in order of the piece, they are Buddhism, Sikhism, Christianity, Zoroastrianism, Hinduism, um, Jainism, and then um, Islam. And specifically, I took Sufi Islam because it's considered blasphemous to set actual Islamic text to music. So uh-huh. I tried to avoid avoid that and, you know, respect, <laughs> respect the tradition. Um, and it's interesting because I can't say that I um, really used in every circumstance, used uh, parts of that religious tradition to inspire the kind of musical setting that I did. Um, a lot of it also depended on the language a little bit because sometimes I feel Indian and uh, words in Indian language is said a little bit differently than words in English and that kind of informs then the entire piece. But certainly there, there is something about Christianity that's very like, here we are, like we are Christians, you know, you are, you will know we are Christians by our love, that kind of thing. And I mean, I say this, I was raised Catholic. So certainly, um, I actually used my own, uh, grandfather's Bible to, to that setting. I took it out of there. Um, uh-huh. but yeah, there, there are, um, there, there was one other situation where, uh, the Sikhism text I used, I talked to someone who is Sikh to, to, and he actually helped me find the text, but then, um, he was also kind of referring me to, to some Sikh music. And there was, there was a bit of it that I just loved. Um, and specifically there's this one little grace note that, that doesn't belong to the key, but only appears as a grace note that that was taken out of a Sikh, um, you know, and, mm. and you say it's a grace note. Can we even hear it? It really changes the fabric of the piece. So, yeah. Oh, fabulous. So we're going to listen to the Jainism movement. Can you tell us anything about that particular one? Yeah. So one thing that's really interesting and that those of you who know Jainism might be surprised by is that Jainism is considered this religion that's the most nonviolent religion. Like, you know, even walking on the ground is like maybe it's harming an ant that's walking there. And that's typically what people know about Jainism. But I found this text that was actually super fiery and is just like, hey, don't do these things that are bad. Like, just get them out of your life. And it's it's very prescriptive, but in a way that's so much more direct than you would think of Jainism as. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, so the texts are, um, and it, with every movement, it's set simultaneously in English and then in the vernacular, which obviously the exception is Christianity because uh, there's no uh, vernacular Christian text that's in in Indian language. So um, I I kind of reversed things there. But Uh um, with Jainism, so it's set in English and in Artha Magadhi, which is the original um, uh, setting, the the way the text originally appears. So the nice thing is that you can um, hear what the original language sounds like, and you can also simultaneously understand what they're saying if you speak English. Fantastic. All right. Well, we are going to listen to Movement 6, Jainism.
All right, Rena, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Ooh, so many things. Um, th- things have kind of... Uh, all piled together after the pandemic. So uh-huh. if you just look at what's on my plate next, um, I'm just in the process of finishing an oboe and piano piece for the International Double Reed Society. I mean, I write probably equal parts um, choir music, orchestra music, and chamber music. So it, it's it, there's a lot in, in every category. After that, I'm working on um, finishing up an oratorio for Amherst uh, College Choir with an amazing uh, librettist poet named Rebecca Gail Howell. And, um, you know, from there, I'm writing a, a third grade band piece for a group in Naperville. Um, so, there, I mean, it's just, it's, it's all over. And I'll, I'll end my year writing a massive half an hour long piece for LA Master Chorale. Um, and then a combination of uh, Hindustani soloists and Western soloists. Fantastic. That sounds like a, a busy schedule. It is, it is. <laughs> so if my listeners want to learn more about you, where are you located online? So um, it's super easy to find me. I'm the only Rena Esmail in the world that I know of. If you are another Rena Esmail, please get in touch. Let's talk. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, RenaEsmail.com. My uh, Instagram is just at Rena Esmail. Um, that's, those are the two best ways to reach me. Fabulous. Well, hey, listeners out there, if you are enjoying today's episode, please share it with two of your friends. Let them know how much you enjoy Movable Dough. If you enjoyed the past four seasons of episodes, please consider becoming a supporting member. For less than a dollar a month, you can help me keep the music moving. Visit anchor.fm slash movable dough and click support. Well, Rena Esmail, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thanks so much for having me. This is wonderful. My guest today was composer Dr. Rena Esmail. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. Thank you.